0: Yes, yes. Welcome in to another edition of the Tim McKernan Show on the Inside STL Podcast Network from the HomeLoanExpert.com studios. Fired up about the interview we have for you today. A lot of people have been asking for this one, which was kind of surprising that people were asking for it. And I'm the supposed poker nerd, uh, but this kind of more uh, got into hockey and poker. With uh, monster Vegas Golden Knights fan, not owner uh, Daniel Negreanu, but of course more people would know him as he really was the face of poker uh, during the poker boom, and he feels passionately about the state of uh, legalized gambling in the United States, and certainly about the game of hockey. So uh, the Sea Monster worked to get Daniel Negreanu. And Daniel Negreanu, we have for you here today, and we talk about all kinds of topics with the man known as Kid Poker. Uh, all of it is brought to you from the HomeLoneExpert.com studios, Ryan Kelly and his staff, loyal sponsors of this show and the Cat Chat, and we couldn't be more grateful for his support on the Inside STL Podcast Network, because without the sponsors... We don't have a podcast network, so please, when the time comes for you to buy a home or when the time comes for you to refinance, and right now would be a very good time to do so, go to thehomeloanexpert.com, go to thehomeloanexpert.com, and you'll see two tabs sitting there, refinance or purchase, and then you choose whichever one best suits you, and you're going to be able to enter in and get an idea of the numbers that Ryan Kelly can save for you, literally, 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 literally. Five minutes can save you $500. Why wouldn't you go to com? Whether it be buying a home, whether it be right refinancing, it's Ryan Kelly and com team making you an opportunity to be a great homeowner or to save you money at com. So, as I said, Daniel Legrano, a guy that many know from the game of poker. He's also very outspoken on Twitter, but... He uh, was truly uh, involved in uh, getting Las Vegas its first professional sports franchise of uh, one of the more uh, the four major pro leagues in the U.S., and that, of course, being the NHL. Now they have the NFL, and who knows uh, if in 10 years they'll have a baseball team or an NBA team or both. So we talk about that, talk a little bit about the Blues, talk about his love of the Golden Knights, and, of course... We go deep diving into poker, and uh, he explains why a gentleman such as myself, who used to play online poker almost daily from 2004 through 2011 till Black Friday, which we also discussed, would probably have his hands full in the online game right now. This is something I was completely unaware of. All of this is coming your way in our interview with Daniel Negrano, here on the Tim McKernan Show on the Inside STL Podcast Network. So, first off, I follow you on Twitter, and I and I saw you, you were saying that you had, was it ACL surgery?
1: I did. March 1st, I had, um, I went in for ACL surgery, and uh, the doctor gave me good news, saying that he was able to salvage my ligament, which means my recovery time will be shorter, and by the third day, I was able to walk without crutches and a brace, and that's just a miracle.
0: That's unheard of for that surgery, isn't it?
1: I th- I want to say, yeah, I mean, like, yeah. I, I mean, all the stories I heard about people who had ACL surgery talking about, you know, how painful it is. And, uh, I didn't feel any pain at any point. I took a couple painkillers just in case, but didn't really feel like I needed them. So I, uh, I mean, I, I, I can't explain it.
0: It just feels like a miracle. So it's less than a week ago. And then you ended your tweet by saying or your video, I'm off to the gym. So what are you like doing? Are you I, actually yeah, able to get around
1: uh, I'm I'm walking fine. I'm walking. Oh, my God. I'm walking as well as I did before I got the surgery, if not better, because I'm able to uh, straighten my leg more than I was able to do before. So I'm going to the gym. I did, you know, upper body, you know, the whole deal. And uh, it just feels good to be back in action
0: so quickly. Good for you, man. That is something else. That is something else. Well, we also see that it, I would say the majority of your tweets – focus on uh the vegas golden knights and here in st louis the passion of course is for the st louis blues blues have been around 50 years haven't hoisted the chalice yet you're in year one and are having an incredible first season so give me your perspective if you would on what you have been able to experience as a golden knights fan in year one
1: well yeah before we get to that first and foremost uh you know, the St. Louis Blues. As far as the way, from where I see it, it doesn't feel like they know whether they're coming or they're going. <laughs> Every year, it's like at the deadline, they're in a playoff hunt, and they, you know, seem to sell pieces. So very confusing what's happening over there in St. Louis. As for you season,
0: are you're, re- you're reaching a lot of fans with that because that's how it feels in St. Louis.
1: It really is strange to me. But what isn't you know strange at all is what's... Well, actually, it's clearly strange what's happening in Vegas. But the plan going forward is quite clear. I mean. Obviously, when we drafted this team, nobody in the league, no pundit, nobody had them. You know, few maybe said they might make the playoffs, but nobody had this team being as good. We didn't even draft the best possible team. You know, players like Mark Mathieu and others, we moved along to create, to, to build assets. And we were able to build enough assets that ranks us somewhere in the middle in terms of uh, resources for the future already in our first year. Now, the product on the ice has been miraculous. I mean, these guys take a bunch of rejects who were told by their previous um you know teams that we don't want you or we can't protect you they all have a common bond you know they came to vegas at a time when we had a shooting um and that really helped bring them together uh and the the, the atmosphere in the arena at home is like nowhere else in the league right now um you know a lot of fans come from the, you know road teams and so it's a little bit like a playoff atmosphere but as far as the product on the ice, they are playing a system that I think is revolutionary. And I think that Gerard Glaunt deserves a lot of credit for playing this super up-tempo, high-variant style, constant pressure, rolling four lines, all defense play, everyone plays. You know, there are no, like, superstars and then everyone else. It's a, it's a team effort every single night.
0: And it's produced an incredible product. You know, one of the Kelly Chase, I, I would imagine, is a big hockey fan. You're familiar with Kelly Chase. Of course, yep. Uh, you better believe it. So Chase is on our radio show weekly. Uh, he's a business partner of mine as well. And he said one of the theories going around that really annoys him is that teams come to Las Vegas, they party, and then they're wasted, and then they play terribly. And he goes, it's such a... To go poker on us, level one thought process that that that's the reason why this team is is successful because it's just it's just it's just BS. He goes, they're actually a really good team, obvious coach of the year, uh, and he said this team is a legitimate force, and it's a credit to them, and it's a disservice to act like that guys are going out there and getting wasted, and that's why they're not successful. I mean, as we're, as we're doing this interview, Daniel, right now, they're, they're 18, 11, and 3 on the road, so it's not like the only reason they're being successful is t- people are, are falling when they, when they play out there in Las Vegas.
1: Right. Now, having said that, you know, the whole Vegas flu is what we call it, should be acknowledged, and I think in the first month, you know, teams come, like Winnipeg and Chicago, uh, the very first time that they arrived here, I think they thought, well, you know, this is, a bunch, this is an expansion team, we don't need to be up, you know, we don't have to be ready for these guys, and they overlooked us. I don't think that's the case anymore, but I do think early on, I mean, I know for a fact that some of those guys were out at establishments in Las Vegas till about 7 a.m. <laughs> the night before. I know <laughs> the Chicago <laughs> players and some of the Winnipeg guys were. So that was a thing for sure. I mean, it's a distraction. Las Vegas has... Uh, a lot to offer these guys, you know, there's no curfew. It's not like coaches and general managers can keep them locked up in a room and watching Netflix. So they are going to engage in having a nice dinner and maybe go out, play some craps before you know it. Whoa, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. But as you (laughs) you pointed out, they're 18 and 11 on the road as well. You know, so the fact that, uh, you know, the Vegas flu clearly may have helped them in the beginning, I think that's uh, an oversight now because I think teams realize, whoa, 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 we we can't take this team lightly. They're really really deep, really good, and they outwork every, they they outwork most every team that they play at home and on the road.
0: So when when the team when the team gets there, obviously you're a huge proponent of a team moving to Las Vegas. And there was conf- I don't know if I don't know if it's fair to call it confusion. I know I was wondering: Is Daniel involved with the team? Is he a partner? Is he involved in some kind of permanent role? So reading up on it in advance of our interview it sounds like you just are a big promoter of the team huge fan of the nhl growing up in in toronto is that is that an accurate way to to describe it
1: well so when before the team you know was even a a reality bill foley reached out to me to help him to be a uh, part of a founding group that was you know their aim was to sell as many season ticket packages as possible to a team that doesn't exist so we went out into the community and try to get people to put 10% deposits down with no promise of when they'd get it back or whether the would be a team or not. And we were able to do a really good job with that. I had an opportunity to buy a piece, you know, but obviously the price tag is quite high. And I thought to myself, well, overall, as far as an investment goes, there are better places to put your money, and I'll just be a super fan either way. So at this point, I have no official role other than, you know, super fan. <laughs>
0: Yeah. <laughs> so when you're watching this team play and and from my standpoint i've played in many world series of poker a per- poker tournaments i haven't obviously had remotely even a tenth of uh the success you've had uh 0.1 percent even but but along those lines the intensity of those decisions it it can be a grading process sitting there for 13 hours at a time at, at the rio so how would you compare the experience as a fan to what you've experienced in playing poker? Because clearly following you on Twitter, you're living and dying with a lot of these games.
1: Oh, it's great. You know, when you play poker, you're in control of all the decisions, right? Obviously, there's luck involved, and sometimes, you know, you have bad luck, but I've got 20 years' experience dealing with that kind of luck. Well, when you're watching the Golden Knights play at home and you see a call that the ref missed or the ref made, I mean, and you can't go down there and yell at him and overturn it, or you see, you know, Shea Theodore make a dumb pass or, you know, something like that. There's nothing you can do to control it. So it's a lot more um, emotional, I would say, you know, having that lack of control because um, when you play poker, as I said, you know, all you can focus on is making the best decisions possible. And, uh, and that's all there is to it. But being a fan, like, I mean, you just got to, like, when you see Ryan Reeves going out there trying to knock people over, and you go, Buddy, you know that's not how we play. Stop it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Ryan Reeves, man. I feel like we miss him in St. Louis. I know you just got him.
1: <laughs> well, it was not an ideal start with Ryan Reeves. Like, there's no question that he's cost us at least a one win. Uh, you know, the very first game he played against the Kings, we're up 2 nothing on the road in the third period, and we usually play our normal style. He takes a penalty because that's kind of what he does. Leads to a goal. We end up losing that one in overtime. And then the next game, down two goals with about 10 minutes to go. He took two penalties. One of them, like, was not a penalty, for sure. It's just that he's such a big guy. When he knocks somebody into the boards, um, he doesn't get the benefit of the doubt. So, overall, it was just a little bit um, – a lot of people in Vegas were a little bit afraid of this experiment because they're thinking, this is not a team that plays that way. We don't bang mm. bodies. We play with skill. We play with speed. And he changed the dynamic a little bit. But – Since then, it seems like he's really fitting in, and long-term, I don't see Reeves as being part of the lineup when we're healthy. He may be somebody we throw in there occasionally if we're playing L.A. or Anaheim, some of the bigger teams that want to push us around, and he can send a message, but other than that, I don't expect him to be part of the regular lineup when we're healthy.
0: How is the team being received in Las Vegas?
1: People in Las Vegas are loving it. I remember going in the exhibition games, and you know their season ticket holders around me, and a lot of them, I was like, okay... That's what's called icing, right? I mean, they didn't even know the rules. <laughs> but now, I mean, the fans are really engaged. I mean, it really has become a hockey town. The, the arena is always full. The energy and the, the – I mean, if you, unless you've experienced it, you hear a lot of guys like Stamkos, vechkin you know, and some coaches come and say, wow. Like what Ovechkin was quoted as saying is like, I don't know if it's like a nightclub, a beach party, or a hockey game. Everybody's dancing and having fun. <laughs> and, um, yeah, but, I mean, there's just such a – a shock, I think, to a lot of – a shock to me because I'm a hockey guy and I know that this is insane. But a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, well, we go to, they always win, right? That's how it works? Like, no, <laughs> that's not how it works. But this is a miracle.
0: Oh, God. I, I, was, I know that there was some skepticism when it was announced that Las Vegas was getting a team. For as much time as I spend out there – I was really hopeful that it would that it would stick and it's great to see the franchise having success on the ice because then that translates to people showing up as opposed to like the Ottawa Senators first year, you know, something along those lines where it's just a debacle and people might not warm up to it. This is exciting to see people coming and showing up and it becoming another event in Las Vegas.
1: Yeah, no question and one of the key things or the key selling points that, you know, I pushed before we had a team was We are going to have an opportunity that no other team has in that, like, when Edmonton is playing Las Vegas and Vegas, 5,000 fans from Edmonton come to that game. Chicago, Buffalo, Detroit. It's a destination. Nobody says, oh, you know what? Edmonton's playing Columbus on March 7th. Why don't we all fly out to watch that game in Columbus? That's not a thing. (laughs) So we have, of course, 2.2 million people in Las Vegas already, right? Then you factor in the thousands of fans who will come to the arena um, on vacations and things like that, or they'll plan their vacations around that. I mean, if you're, you know, you and a bunch of guys live in Calgary, and it's January 1st, you say to yourself, well, I mean, let's, let's get a trip and go out to Vegas, have some fun and watch the game. So we have the best of both worlds. And the product in terms of like an end from an entertainment value is really like unparalleled. Like my girlfriend comes to the game. She yells, move it that way. Doesn't know anything about hockey, but just loves <laughs> the atmosphere. She said, literally move it that way. That's
0: that's her hockey... uh, (laughs) Move it that way. I like that. Move it
1: that way. She yells
0: it all the time. For my money. Now, in St. Louis, of course, the Cardinals rule the day. No question about that. But if you were to ask St. Louisans, you know, a metropolitan area of three-plus million people, and you talk to the sports fans, what would you rather have? I I firmly believe this. I think a poll was actually done. Would you rather see the Cardinals win a world championship or the Blues win a Stanley Cup? Even though St. Louis is as baseball crazy as it is, the Blues winning a Stanley Cup would win. I'm very confident in that. And so much of that is the franchise has been around for 50-plus years. There have been a variety of near misses. They went to the Cup Finals the first three years. Granted, it was a different era with the expansion teams getting in and haven't been back since. And this market is so hungry. And one of the reasons you experience this as such a huge NHL fan – The Stanley Cup playoffs, for my money, even if you're not a huge hockey fan during the regular season, the Stanley Cup playoffs are as good as it gets in sports. And you guys are about to experience that. Now, you've experienced it before, but your cohorts in Las Vegas are about to experience that. And that is just about as good as it gets, man. It really is.
1: Oh, yeah. No, I'm not surprised by the poll results because of one simple fact that you go to a baseball game, you go to a hockey game, but baseball is absolutely boring in comparison. There's no question in my mind, and I've been to both, that hockey is a lot, you know, thats up-tempo, it's fast, you don't have a lot of, like, wait time in between. And as you mentioned, the playoffs, every other night, you got these guys banging bodies for, you know, through four series, and by the time you get to the finals, you got these guys in beards that can barely walk, but they're giving <laughs> it their all, you know, playing a grueling schedule. I mean, you think about what a first baseman has to go through. You know, to win uh, the World Series uh, of baseball. Sure, you know, the regular season is a long and arduous process, 162 games, but it's not like they've got to do a lot of running and hitting. You know what I mean? So the engagement, the, the emotion involved in hockey, I think, is unparalleled.
0: I, uh, I'm i looking forward to the Stanley Cup playoffs. Hopefully the Blues will be in there. That is uh, certainly not a given, but the uh, Golden Knights, they're going to be in there. How do you think, and how is it going right now? It's still a couple years away. How do you think the Raiders will be received in Las Vegas.
1: Well, first and foremost, I'm so happy that we got the nights before the Raiders, because there would have been a concern that yeah. you know, if you bring the NBA, you bring the NFL, then you bring hockey, people are like, you know what, I'm good. Because obviously Las Vegas, you know, it's in the United States. It's it's already It already has a root in football and basketball. Like when March Madness happens, people come to Vegas. When the Super Bowl happens, people come to Vegas. Um, hockey was new. So having the head start is imperative. As far as what will happen when the Raiders come, they're going to sell out. You know, uh, that's not going to be a surprise. They're going to do quite well. And overall, I don't think, and despite my initial concerns, that it will hurt the hockey product much because you're only talking about eight games, right? You know, eight games through a season. You know, and there's 41 hockey games. So, um, scheduling wise, I think this city can sustain uh, both franchises, and maybe down the line, you know, as well an NBA team because. You know, so far, I think that people looking at the hockey experiment and how it worked in Vegas is going to excite a lot of owners and management teams to think about either relocating here or, you know, building a team here.
0: So let me ask you where things stand, in your opinion, with poker in the United States. Uh, I was on April 15th, 2011. I was actually online playing when everything went down Uh, and I was so comfortable Maybe I was just conning myself into believing, okay, well, this will be the impetus for something to get worked out and we'll have regulated poker in the United States. And here we are seven years later. Oh, that makes me cringe to think. Seven years later and nothing has happened from a tangible standpoint. How would you, as somebody who knows about the landscape, is passionate about the landscape, how would you analyze the state of potential online poker in the United States in 2018?
1: Well, so we've seen some growth. We've seen the experiment in New Jersey, which is like sort of a catalyst for other states to look at it and say this is a possibility. PokerStar is the company that I work with. They are regulated in New Jersey. Um, They're also looking at Pennsylvania, New York. Delaware is already regulated. We have some regulation as well in Nevada. California is a big piece of the pie that, you know, it's the sixth largest economy on its own which would be a big win, but we have issues with, um, you know, it's just government bureaucracy and, you know, there's a lot of um, tribes there that have horse racing and they have their own casinos and they're concerned this isn't a moral issue for anyone. And anyone who claims that is just doing what most politicians do, lie, right? This isn't (laughs) about protecting people. This is simply about, you know, making sure that they get the biggest piece of the pie. Poker is regulated in Estonia, You know, I mean, people playing all over the world in these abstract places, totally legal. And it's amazing that in America, the land of the free, you don't have the freedom to sit in your underwear, you know, and play a $1 sit-and-go and have some fun, right? Meanwhile, you can buy lottery tickets that the government has a piece of. There is just no logic behind it in terms of, like... What's best for a society? I think that I believe in you know people having the right to just choose to do with, with their money what they like. Um, and poker has shown itself to not be the type of gambling endeavor that lends itself towards addictive personalities. Addictive personalities typically are drawn to quick, fast-paced slot machines and things like that. Poker right. is a thinking game. It does not, you know, it, the, 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 sort of the, the whole moral issue that people who don't understand the topic may come with don't realize that poker doesn't really qualify in the same ways as some of those other actually addictive gambling types of, of situations. So the forecast, um, you know, on a federal level, that's a long ways away. As long as Republicans are in office, you'll never see it happen because they're, you know, they have Sheldon Adelson paying them lots of money to not make it happen. You need to have a Democratic Senate, House, and, uh, you know, possibly a, a new, you know, commander in chief.
0: I'm curious. There's so many questions I have out of your answer there. This is one of the things, and and maybe you don't have the answer. I have a feeling you do, uh, at the very least, a thesis. Why is Sheldon Adelson so against online poker?
1: Sheldon Adelson is a very strange man, okay? He's an old (laughs) man who's been very, very successful at doing what he's done to build, you know, through real estate. But he's also, frankly, stupid. He's really not all that intelligent. He doesn't really understand the evolution of technology, and a lot of times a guy like him, very, very stubborn old man, like, frankly, um, like, I'll give you an example. This is a true story. He had a business deal, like a $300 million deal for an airline uh, with a gentleman who also made custom suits. They had the deal ready to sign, and before they sign it, he says to the man, he's like, and I want you to throw in 20 custom suits or we don't have a deal. 20 suits, right? So Sheldon Adelson is just simply one of these strange guys, likes to get the upper hand, doesn't feel like he has the upper hand when it comes to online gaming. If he did, if he felt like he was up to par, he'd be all for it. But he doesn't yeah. want any of his competitors or anyone else to cut into any potential profits that he has. So it's this. it's not a moral issue with him. It's like everything with him, which is about money and bottom line. And he doesn't feel like online gaming helps him specifically. So he's willing to spend millions of dollars buying politicians to uh, speak out against what he believes would hurt his casino. He's actually, as I said, he's a dumb man, so he's actually wrong about that as well, because online gaming would actually increase his revenue online as well as in the casinos.
0: Absolutely, in the brick and mortars. So let's go back to 2006, the Unlawful Internet Gaming Enforcement Act. The, the, The history on that, for those listening, my understanding, Bill Frist, who was going to make a run... In 2008, for president, uh, this was one of his pet projects. It was tacked on to a port security bill in the wee hours of the morning and passed. And that is what was used on April 15th, 2011, to get online poker in the United States shut down. Is that an accurate nutshell summary?
1: Yeah, you could also just call it sleazy politics. You're right. right. <laughs> it was late on a Friday night, there was it was late on a Friday night. There's a port security bill that was all, that was definitely going to pass. It had to pass. Right. So he tacked on in you know a port security bill, sort of this online gaming uh, bit that obviously most of these politicians don't even read through, and they just mm. obviously know that they have to vote for the port security bill. So he's able right. to sneak it in late on a Friday night, and uh, you know create what he was able to do to shut down a lot of. Um, You know, the the sites that were flourishing at the time, there was a lot of ad revenue for a lot of networks on television because these sites were spending money to bring in new people. And uh, the more, you know, uh, notoriety they got, the more it became sort of an issue that Bill Frist could hang his hat on, you know, like like as though he's doing some good for the world by not letting, you know, Grandma Betty play like five cent poker on (laughs) on the Internet. It's just (laughs) madness.
0: I mean, I, I gather the motivation. Again, I'm, I, we're, we're attempting to, to play the hand backwards here. I gather the motivation 12, 13 years ago was to appeal to social conservatives for a 2008 presidential run. I gather that?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, is I mean, that w- – That or, or, you know, again, we were not, I'm not really sure who, you know, was putting money in his coffers. I know for right. – I mean, I've heard there's a very good connection to the NFL itself. And the NFL not really liking online gaming. So the NFL as a whole is one of the most hypocritical and evil organizations that exists in America, as far as I'm
0: concerned. You're talking to you're talking to St. Louis Rams fans, so trust me, your words are resonating, sir.
1: <laughs> yeah, they're the most hypocritical. You know, they take a stance that's so heavily anti-gambling when. You know, if Cleveland and Detroit are playing on a Sunday evening, the only reason people are watching is because they have money on it, right? Yep. But they take this stance. Like, we had a couple football players who wanted to come play in a poker charity event to raise money for sick children, sick children, to raise money for them. They didn't let them do it because it was through poker. I mean, it's just so, such a hypocritical stance. And NFL doesn't want legalized gambling in America because that opens up the opportunity for the NBA, for MLB, and for NHL to sort of like uh, close the gap, because they like the situation the way it is right now. They get the ratings, they have the eyeballs, uh, people are betting legally and uh, illegally all across the country, Mm -hmm. overseas as well, so they like the way things were. They didn't really like the idea of online gaming taking flight and cutting into their revenue. Ultimately, every conversation we have about this is going to end up with, what benefits me? What helps my pocket? It's all about money, has nothing to do with what's best for society.
0: Yeah. It's so unfortunate and the thing is I th- I think when we're talking with the casual observer most people go yeah why isn't it regulated and taxed why why isn't it and it, but I gather because it's played in a casino it's seen by those who don't play the game as being the same as slots craps take your pick of whatever game of chance and they have no idea of the skill element, which I thought the UIGEA carved out a loophole for that in the first place. That was my understanding. But is the, the, right. the debate that it's a, not a game of skill?
1: Well, this is where you, when you listen to see these like rawa hearings, or when you, you get these politicians in a room and they start talking about you know poker's a, a game of gambling and not skill. I'm like, you know, I want to issue each any one of them a challenge. Have a seat with me, and I'll play you heads up, and we'll just see how much of a game of luck it is. I'll lay you a price, okay? I'll put up $12,000 here, 10000 and we'll keep doing it until I bust you, and maybe you will start to understand that this isn't just uh, you know, flipping a coin. This is a skill-based game, and any argument against that is foolish, and it just comes from like a lack of understanding. Now, in fairness, a lot of these politicians have a lot on their plate. They have a lot of other more pressing issues that are important to them that they don't spend a lot of time and energy understanding online poker or poker in general, but if they are you know, going to speak on it somewhat or, or claim to speak on it intelligently, they should at least understand the reality and the truth of what they're saying, and it's just not – it is – like, if you're going to claim that uh, you know, fantasy sports or, like, draft uh, – you know, uh, daily fantasy sports right. is a game of skill and not poker – I mean, what are you talking absurd. about? Absurd.
0: I play both and it's not even. I mean, it's absurd to even try to run that offense. It's absurd.
1: Yeah, both yeah. are games of skill. There's no question. Yes. I know professional uh, handicappers who are playing daily fantasy sports. I know professional poker players. I also know people who lose at both. And the majority of people are going to lose, but it, there is an opportunity there for skill. You know what, you know it's not skill-based? What the government offers, which is lottery, which is guaranteed <laughs> like you cannot game that system. You cannot be a professional lottery player. You cannot win at it long term, or at least from an uh, equity perspective. Um, so it's just so hypocritical once again for the government to take the stance of you know whether it's a skill game when they offer you know games of chance completely.
0: Uh, it, it truly drives me up the wall. And even if somebody wants to put on the front that it's a moral thing from a from a revenue standpoint, when you have an industry begging. To be regulated and taxed, especially you made reference to California the sixth biggest economy for a state that has all kinds of financial problems, why not tap into that? I, and I, I agree. I think that was very fair to point out. Of course, politicians have other more pressing issues. But you're talking about a large pot of revenue just sitting there, and it's not being tapped into it. It really does confuse me. Drives me up the wall. Yeah,
1: you're you're absolutely right. Because, for example, Poker Stars is regulated, I believe, in a dozen plus countries, and essentially, Poker Stars has come to the United States. And says, we would like to pay a bunch of money in taxes, right? <laughs> California, you need money to, for, you know, for water reservation. You need money for, for schools, for for roads, for construction. We can give you 150 to 200 million in tax revenue that you can take right off the top if you like it, if you can use that. So I think <laughs> some states, when they realize, like, wow, this is an opportunity here, they are coming around to it. As I said, Pennsylvania looks like it's on board. Delaware, New Jersey. The key thing with since you played online poker, you understand is um, for a, for a site to be successful, it requires um, critical mass of players. So yes. connecting the entire like state-to-state play so that people from Nevada can play with people from New Jersey is really, really important. And going forward, I feel like that'll be the way to tackle the issue is to go state-by-state. You build together a grid of states that you can play uh, interstate poker, and all of a sudden you can sort of recreate what we had, um, what is it, like 10 years ago now almost.
0: Yeah, I mean, for real. So so with with that as a point of reference, Daniel, how have you seen the game impacted – since April 15, 2011, better known as Black Friday?
1: Well, the one thing that it's done is it's put American players at a huge disadvantage. The best players in the world are no longer from America, not even close. Uh, mm. The Germans um, have access to online poker, players from you know Scandinavia, from Russia, from all over the world that can practice the craft and really play at a high competitive level online and, and really get good. It's much more difficult now for a player who was born and raised in the United States to, you know, become one of the elite players in the world because they don't have access to the training tools, essentially, which is what online poker is for a lot of these guys. It's a way to play a large number of hands over a short period of time and gain the experience that can only be gained at that rate if you're playing online poker.
0: Know that without our sponsors, it's not possible. And that's a real thing. Uh, And James Carlton and the Carlton State Farm Agency are one of our top sponsors. As a matter of fact, they've been with us from the very beginning. You might be sitting there thinking that you don't know what the hell you're listening to or what the hell I'm talking about, but know this, know this, James Carlton does. And if you don't believe it, you can go online and see the Facebook reviews that his company's gotten. And you can see the Google reviews his company has gotten, and you know that they know what they're doing. If you're in front of your computer while listening to this, go to carltoninsurance.net right now, and just get a quote to see what the good word is. Ask yourself this question, what's my insurance company doing for me? Then go check them out on Google and Facebook and see what they're doing for others in your community. The good news is you probably already have the product that James offers. The bad news... If you're not with James, you're without question sacrificing service and likely paying too much. I think a lot of insurance agencies, people just do it on their own or they have one assistant. I visited James's office, and uh, my gosh, there's two floors and there are people all over the place to make sure that when you call, you're talking to somebody directly and not being put through a switchboard and and dealing with all kinds of headaches. It's not the way they do it, and that's why the customer service is second to none. It's the James Carlton State Farm Agency. James Carlton, a State Farm insurance agent. If your insurance costs a leg and an arm, call James Carlton State Farm. When you're at brick-and-mortar casinos, do you feel like you see a decrease? Every year for the main event, we monitor how many entrants there are, and it seems like it's, it's holding up, but I can only speak for me personally. When it was alive and kicking for seven years, I mean, it became a second revenue stream. It wasn't my main income, but it got to a point where it was something that I was counting on. And now, I mean, you can play in the United States. There are sites, but I certainly don't trust them like i trusted poker stars for example and so i don't really want to mess with it you know and so my interest in going to play brick and mortar is is not there
1: you know i would say that poker is actually doing quite well in the united states overall in terms of live play and brick and mortar play um the one difference of course now we face is in the old days like the times you're talking about there's a tournament at bellagio in las vegas in america in december where you know everyone in the whole world came to play now it's gone so global that there are big tournaments in Europe, there's big tournaments in Australia and things, so people travel less, like America is no longer the hub. It's just been globalized, so we don't see as much of it. Plus, one of the big factors is we don't have as much poker on you know, mainstream television. We used to have you know shows like The Big Game and Poker After Dark on Fox and yeah. DC Late Nights. Now what we've moved to is a new uh, way to watch poker. It's uh, a, you know, a streaming service called Poker Go!, which is a mm-hmm. monthly subscription of, I believe, like eight or nine dollars, where you can get tons of live streams and live footage for like diehard fans. But again, that doesn't bring in the casual viewer who got into poker because they were watching something at two a.m. on NBC and was like, "What's this all about?" So we've lost that here in America, and a big part of that is, you know, it's online poker is not regulated.
0: Do you believe in five years? We will have regulated online poker across the United States, so not just the state by state that we're seeing right now, but across the United States.
1: Well, if I had to bet money on it, to say that you know poker be regulated at a federal level, I would say absolutely not. No, I don't think that'll happen in five years. Um, there are states like Utah, and I think Minnesota is one who are very anti. But I do believe that you'll see you'll continue to see growth. Like New York is a big possibility if it works out in Pennsylvania and Delaware, and, and they can sort of connect the, the states. California is the big fish that everybody wants to enter, and it's been stagnant. It's, we've run up against roadblocks again and again with the you know, different tribes who are, I think, being short-sighted overall in terms of how it will affect their revenue. And I think there's opportunity for growth if they partner with some of these you know, sites. But I see more online poker being played in different states, but I don't think at the federal level you'll see anything at five years, if ever.
0: Oh God, that guts me to hear the if ever guts me. Well,
1: I can't bet on something. That, you know, it's hard to bet on politicians like coming to their senses and doing the right thing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I understand that. I under I understand that. I see the Twitter feed. So here's another thing that I think has been impacted in in the U.S. And I'm curious what your vibe on this is because it's difficult to get the casual player to play. You, now the game is. Tougher to beat in the U.S. Is that fair? Mm, yeah, I, it, it would make sense what you said, and it seems logical. Mm-hmm.
1: But actually, in the U.S., the games are actually quite, quite good. Because again, as I mentioned, a lot of the players who have really evolved are outside of the U.S. So, you know, even in Canada, yeah, we're seeing a lot of like top players coming out of there. One of the things that they are using, which has made the best even better, is they're using um, like what's called solvers. Essentially, there are computer programs that help figure out, you know, the, the GTO way to play. GTO standing for Game Theory Optimal. So a lot of players are using these new advanced study tools that are like nothing we've seen before. Um, you know, the, the evolution of AI and artificial intelligence has touched poker as well, and a lot of the guys are using this as a study tool, which makes um, rest-of-world play much tougher than America because I don't think you're seeing a lot of usage of solvers in america as in comparison to other countries let's
0: let's get into the weeds on the solvers thing because when i when when i was playing in the u.s you know you would have your you know your god i don't remember what the, what the hell the, the name of the things that you would use to, to track hands and track players and all uh, that tracking stuff. software the, yeah there you go <laughs> mm-hmm. so what are these solvers what, i'm not familiar with this since i'm not okay, playing so online so let's say for
1: example A solver works like this. Basically, it wants to give you the game theory optimal play. So what that means is what would be the best play if you were playing against a perfect robot, right? Okay. So what you can do is, let's say you can be in a situation where you say, you know, you have ace-king, and uh, you raise, and one player called, and the flop comes 10-5, you know, 2. So what is the GTO play for you to make with that ace-king? You can plug all the variables into this software, and it will tell you specifically. So, for example, it says... You should be betting seventy-five percent of the time. Let's say that's not correct, mm-hmm. but we'll just go with that. So uh-huh. now the player knows that he should be have a betting frequency of seventy-five percent. So betting, you know, three fourths of the time. Now mm-hmm. that's perfect against the robot. What you do now is you adjust. So let's say, for example, I know the correct frequency seventy-five percent, but I also know that I'm up against a player who just doesn't fold very often. Right? He's no, he doesn't fold. Often enough, so maybe against right. that person I lower it to fifty percent or even twenty five percent. Or maybe I'm up against a player who folds way too often, so I'll just do it a hundred percent of the time. So what happens is you take this software that teaches the game theory baseline against the robot, and you adjust it to the you know the the strengths and weaknesses of your of your opponents. Now some guys today they don't make any adjustments; they just try to make the GTO play, right? They just want to do exactly what they, you should do against the robot. Hence, they become inexploitable. You can't, like, take advantage of them because they're doing, like, the right thing, if you will. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it does. So, so when, how, how recent has this become a main part for the great players of their strategies?
1: I'd say in the super high rollers, you know, the, the ones that I play with buy-ins minimum 25000 all the way up to, like, million-dollar buy-in tournaments, um, it's been about two years where it really came to the forefront, but in the last year, year and a half, the evolution of how people are using this data um, has really evolved to the point where you have people that are randomizing, right? So, for example, let's say, well, you want to bet 70% of the time. Well, how do you do that, right? How do you guarantee that you're going to bet 70% of the time? Right. Well, there's one player where what he'll do is he'll look at his watch, okay? So if it's uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, or a seven on the, on the second hand, he bets. If it's the eight, nine, or zero, he checks. So he's completely <laughs> randomized and completely in the percentage that he needs to be. So he makes himself unexploitable. So there's different ways in which players are taking this information and using it to try to play, um, you know, high-level poker.
0: So have you found that to be impacting your ability to be profitable?
1: Well, it's forced me in the last. I actually started working with a computer scientist and another gentleman who knows how to really extrapolate the data. And I basically hired them as coaches to teach me how th- how to use this information in a very effective way because I found that in the last, you know, whatever, there was a period where I'm like, okay, these guys are getting a little too good. And just like, you know, there's always evolutions in poker where players get better. But this was something like we've never seen before. So I really mm-hmm. had to train myself to think about the game in a new way. And uh, it's gone really, really well. I've got two really great coaches that have helped me a lot. So it's forced me to think more in terms of, Um, playing from a more game theory perspective like a math oriented place rather Mm. than just feel if you will or just playing based off of like hunches or you know instinct it's more you know a little more regimented now my game
0: Uh, how would you describe when you're playing live is it it the same thing are you still using that intuition i mean you were known for owning souls by reading people so well so
1: that's the great thing about the way that i'm learning how to implement this information right so Let's say, for example, there's a situation where I know that this guy bet the river, and I know I should be calling 50% of the time, right? Mm -hmm. There's formulas to figure out, okay, I'm in this specific part of the range of hands I could have. I should call this man 50% of the time. But now I look at him, okay? I notice Mm -hmm. something in his demeanor. I notice a tell, and I say, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. He looks very, very, very strong here. So now maybe instead of calling 50%, maybe I should only call with the top 20% of my hands, or 10%, or maybe even zero, if I'm dead on with a read, right? So you can use this information to play game theory optimal and then make the necessary adjustments based on physical tells and player reads. So it's actually made me better. It's actually made me a much better player and made me actually my reads even more powerful and more um, worthwhile.
0: Wow. How about that? I know, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, and so for any politician, not that any politician who would have any impact on getting this stuff regulated in the U.S. listening to this and going, oh, it's not a game of skill. Yeah, this is this, the, the, right there. The last 15 minutes kind of drives home the whole point that this thing is at another level. It's, it's, It's truly something to behold. You actually track... All of your results, as most players should, if they want to a improve and B for tax purposes, but you had back to back losing years uh, playing poker despite cashing two point seven million in two thousand seventeen. The sports reporter in me goes, "What happened but having played <laughs> but having played the game, I know that that 's also part of the game is is the swings, the variants that you made reference to when we were talking golden Knights earlier.
1: Yeah, so I look at it more like and I realize it's two losing years, but I look at one is basically break even. So as you said, I cashed for two point seven million last year um, and spent like two point seven six in buy in. So like fifty, sixty thousand um yeah. dollars of a loss is basically breaking even at the stakes that I'm playing. And the year before I did have a losing year, but when you factor in let's say the last five years or the last ten or the last twenty, you then you see like a bigger picture, right? With poker there's ebbs and flows. Over a I play about sixty events a year. Over sixty events, variants can play a, a, a very major role. Luck. You know, you get it all in you know, everyone knows the story. You get it all in with Kings, the guy is Ace Jack, and an ace comes, right? You didn't do anything wrong, but you didn't you, you know, you lost three hundred thousand instead of winning two million. So that does play a role. In addition to that, as I said, the edges are smaller now because um, the players are so much better. So it's much more difficult to realize like a winning year every single year. I've had a good start to this year up about four hundred thousand already. Um but uh, it's certainly a case of the game getting tougher, but also just luck. Like, I don't look at it and go, oh, my goodness, I'm done. I'm, you know, it's, it's over for me. I realize, like, throughout my career I've been quite lucky. You know, if you looked at the last five years, I'm up about 12 to $14 million.
0: God, isn't that just absolutely sick? That's so. Is is that, so? Is poker just when when you look at Daniel Negreanu's tax returns each year? Is it is it poker, or like ninety five percent, or how much of that? How much of your income is is poker related?
1: Well, I don't know the exact percentage. I don't have to break that down because I really don't know much about money. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm,
0: I'm really, I would love to not know much about money and have won twelve to fourteen million over the yeah, last decade. I
1: feel so. <laughs> if people start talking about you know all this money stuff i'm like it's one of the most boring topics ever for me um but for what i know is obviously i have a sponsorship agreement with poker stars i also right. work with poker central poker go so i have some revenue that comes in from that but outside of that it's just poker i don't like make any money for doing radio shows or you know doing the post game with the boys uh, for the for the night's games so right. uh, but 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 it's predominantly poker yeah
0: so here's something that I, I wonder about, because sometimes, you know, I've, I've gotten into golf. Because when I was playing poker all the time, I stopped playing golf. Now I'm back to playing golf all the time, and I don't play poker. I can't I don't know why I can't do both, but whatever. That's where I am. Just bizarre. But either way, some guys who, who play golf, you know, I was, I'm down here in uh, Palm Beach Gardens where they had the Honda Classic last weekend. And there are some guys who just are naturally gifted. Um, I, I it wouldn't be fair to name names cause I don't know for certain, but you can kind of just tell they're going through the motions. They know they're not going to win, but they're going to cash and have a nice living, but they're not looking to be firing to, to try and win the things and put in the work that it takes. And they're, you know, in their thirties, forties, whatever the case might be, they're enjoying the ride. You are, are still playing. It's your source of income. Are you still loving playing the game or at this point after doing it now for 20 plus years moving to Vegas what at 22 are you going oh god this is what I gotta do but I'm not looking forward to a, an online grind or you know the World Series of Poker here we go everybody's gonna be pulling for me and inevitably something you know crappy could happen and then they're gonna go oh, this sucks Daniel's lost his edge whatever how is your mindset after all the success you've had but now sitting at what 42, 3 years old?
1: 43 is correct yeah I would say yeah. that in 2004, I had a banner year. I was player of the year. I won $4.5 million before even they had big events. There was like only $10,000 buy-ins back then. So yeah. I had a really big year, and I was way ahead of my time in terms of skill level compared to the competition. That by 2005, I was pretty bored because it was too easy. Now, wow. as of last September, I played in what's called the Poker Masters, which is a new major you know that we have. That's really high buy-ins with the best players. A lot of them were German, as I mentioned. Um, and I realized that you know I was outclassed and they were outplaying me. So that actually excited me. That made me say, "Okay, let's get serious." And I set aside October, November, December, three months with a specific program. This is what I, how I live my life, goal setting wise. I set aside three months where I said, "I'm just going to study. I'm going to work with my coaches." I'm going to work on everything that needs to be done, and then I'm going to come back fresh and ready to go. And so I took that three months. The very first event that I played after that was a $100,000 buy-in at the end of December, and I won a million dollars um, to close out the wow. year. And since then, I've been cashing at a, an alarming rate um, since I put in the work. But I feel like it's really, really important to never get complacent, and I actually, you know, to, to really answer your question, I love it now more than ever, because I'm learning all this new stuff. And I'm able to compete now again with these top players. And my favorite thing to do now, because I think a lot of the high rollers, they sort of got, they had a read on my game, and they see, they know what I'm doing. My favorite thing to do now is see them in agony. <laughs> and see them going, oh, my God, what do I do here? Like, whenever they're, you know, sweating, and they're, you see they're, them touching their brow, and they're like, ah. They're, when they when they let out a big sigh, I feel like, all right. You know, I've, I've sudden <laughs> become a lot tougher to play against.
0: <laughs> we, there's so many personalities really became household names for that that I don't know whatever period of time decade maybe when the game was was appealing to the casual fan and it was wonderful because a lot of fish came to the table uh, including myself for certain uh, who are, who of the household names are people that when you're sitting at a table you're going God ah I don't want to be dealing with him or her and so i mean i'm sure there are guys you're talking about guys in germany and some of these guys who probably some of the best players but wouldn't necessarily resonate with our audience as far as their names go so I'm, you know i'm talking about the ivies hellmuths of the world the, you know the magician Esfandiari. where 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 do these guys come in from your mindset assessing their skill level
1: all right so this is where i'm going to be blunt and honest From that 2004-2005 era of all the big names and, you know, the sort of the pop and surface stance when poker was big, not one of them, literally not one of them, is competing at the highest levels, um, and that is a threat as far as I'm concerned. Like, all of the players today are typically under 35. They're not household names if you were fans of the poker boom. A guy like Fedor Holtz is someone you probably never heard of. Stefan Sontheimer, Stefan Schilhabel, you know, not easy. They don't roll off the tongue, these names, but – it's evolved past that era because the, the issue is for a lot of those players, they reach the, you know, whatever, the, the pinnacle and they stop working. I'm just not uh-huh. that kind of person. I never want to be passed by. So I continue to learn and work, uh, and work hard on my game. And I think, you, you know, it's very easy for people to get to a complacent place of arrogance where they think they have it all figured out and to have like a lack of respect for the younger generation that's learning at a rapid rate. I was never that person. I've always been looking to see what tools are they using, what are they learning. What changes are they making to the game, and how do I need to adjust to this? There is one player that play people might know of that is still playing in the high rollers. His name is Eric Seidel. Uh, oh, yeah. He's second on Absolutely. the all-time money list behind me, um, and he's still playing at the highest levels, but he isn't one of the premier players, and I think he would readily admit, know, he's not like one of the top 10 to 20 players in those necessarily, but uh, he's still competing at those levels as
0: well. Wow. Have you had nights, I would imagine this has to have happened, like the first time I got knocked out of a main event, I just I immediately got to McCarran and got on a plane. I was lucky there was one sitting there ready to go back to St. Louis, and I couldn't sleep. Okay, and I and, and in reality it was ten years ago it was my first main event. And I look back on it and for what of course I go out there thinking I've got a chance, and of course theoretically I have a chance, but you know where I'm going with it. Mathematically, yes there's a chance. Probability it's minimal. So I shouldn't have had the expectations that I did. But with that said, it's ate at me. I couldn't sleep, you know, for a day. With doing what you do, playing at the level that you play at, how do you – it's like I wonder about like a like, like closer in baseball who he blows a save or a field goal kick or misses a kick and it costs the team a game. Sometimes they say they have to have the mentality that it kind of goes in one ear and out the other and then you're back. How do you handle whether it be like that brutal main event beat a couple of years ago that, that kept you from the final table or some monster pot where you were one-outed or two-outed? How does that affect you when you get away from it and you're on your way home or, or sitting in bed?
1: Well, I'll say, you know, first and foremost, it, it just becomes easier with experience. The more you have to deal with those types of situations, the more that you learn how to, like, you know, to handle it. For me, um, I use a process that I learned. I did some emotional intelligence training at a course here in Las Vegas about four years ago, which has been really helpful in terms of, like, turning those moments into, like, breakthroughs and learning opportunities and a chance to grow from them, right? So every breakdown in life is an opportunity for a breakthrough, so when those moments happen, typically what I'll do is I go through a process where I separate my thoughts from my feelings from my physical sensations. So how does that look? All right. So I got knocked out from a tournament, right? So my, my thoughts might be this dummy got it all in with 9-6 offsuit and busted my pocket aces. He has no chance to win. He screwed me out of my tournament. It was none of my fault. I'm so pissed. I hate this guy. Right?
0: <laughs>
1: I'm venting. I like it. Now what am I feeling? Okay? My feeling is anger. I'm angry right now. Then what are my physical sensations? Okay, my heart might be racing. My foot's tapping. I'm breathing heavy. I'm, I'm warm and hot, right? So now I'm present to the experience that I'm experiencing, okay? And this works for all things in life whenever you deal with a breakdown. So now that I'm actually present, and there's a lot of talk about this in society, like how do you get present, right? That's one way to do it. Now what I'm able to do is choose. How do I want to feel? right i want to feel focused i want to feel calm i want to feel relaxed i want to feel joyful happy and it doesn't necessarily happen right away but with practice you start to notice that you can shift out of those tormented feelings much faster than before and ultimately what another little sort of trick that i like to do is i try to take the responsible version of everything so instead of the like poor woe is me oh, my God, it wasn't my fault, da-da-da-da-da, this dummy did this. It might be true. All those things might be true. But there's no value in that. There's no real value. I'm not, I'm not going to have a takeaway from that. What is more valuable is saying, you know, what, you know what, I should stand responsible for the fact that I didn't realize that this player was capable of making such a play, and I didn't adjust accordingly to protect myself. You know, Despite him making a mistake, maybe this was something. Or what about a previous hand? Was there a mistake that I might have made before? Was I fully prepared? If I go through my checklist... And everything I did to, to prepare for the event and go through the event, I did everything right. Then I go, I leave saying, you know what, you did everything right. If there was a, an area where maybe I could have done something better, that's where I want to focus on and say, okay, I acknowledge my mistake here, I, I boo booed here. So what am I going to commit to in the future? Well, I'm going to commit to making sure I'm not on my cell phone so I don't miss, you know, the physical read that I can get mm. from this guy, or I'm going to make sure that I sleep eight hours a night, or I'm not going to drink the night before, or I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, show up on time. I'm going to make sure I'm. Well fed, whatever it takes to make to be responsible. This is, I really believe this is true of all things in life. So much more valuable than going. Well, nothing I could do. There's no power in that. None.
0: Yeah, yeah. Boy, that, I, I'm not going to replay this over and over again because it, it's so helpful to think through, to be able to think through the acknowledgement of okay, this is why I'm on tilt. Here's where I am. Here's what I need to do. And here's my choice of how I want to feel. That's so helpful, and like you said, you can apply it to plenty of other things other than a bad beat in poker.
1: Well, and it's very important at a poker table. It's very important for a golfer because sometimes you're going to take a bad beat, and you still have to play, right? It's not over. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if you allow that hand to affect you, or if you allow that missed putt or that shanked drive to affect the rest of your round, you've, you're going to ruin yourself. Yep. You yep. need to be able to experience, you know, and that there's plenty of data that will prove that, like, you won't let go of an experience until you allow yourself to actually experience it, get present to it, then you can move on from it and commit to something else. So you see a lot of guys, you know, who vent. Like Phil Helmuth actually is a perfect example of a guy who vents and goes crazy in the moment. He lets that out. You know, so he's able to get back on track and you know do whatever goofy stuff that he likes to do. But uh, <laughs> you know, for me, I find that nothing is more important than experiencing the experiencing. Uh, experience the experience letting it go and recommitting to what do I want to focus on here? I want to focus on the next hand, not the last mm-hmm. hand, the next hand, the hand that I'm playing right now. I want to be sure I'm engaged, you know, determined, focused, you know, happy and let go of whatever I had to deal with, you know, the hand previous.
0: That's such good coaching it's just good mental strategy for so many things in life I found for real that poker has helped me in business because the the analogy I make and now you hear a lot of people like Joel Embiid always talking about the process Nick Saban talking about the process but you know the analogy you made earlier on I got you know you got it in with aces and he beat you with nine six offsuit it didn't mean you made the wrong play and then anytime I'm in business somebody goes well but I won then I'm like okay I already know what what level this person's thinking on and i know where my advantage is is that they're going to focus on the result as opposed to the process now i feel like the term the process has been like hijacked by like instagram models and so it's, it's kind of been you know uh detonated as far as its value goes but i really do subscribe to that stuff as opposed to the results oriented i, I really find that to be to have value outside of the game of poker
1: well, yeah, anytime you're doing anything that involves a probability-based business or something like that, it's re- you're required to just focus on decisions. For example, if you're a stockbroker, you're going to analyze data, and you're going to make decisions that you expect in the long run you're going to make money on. You don't make money on every single trade. It's just not possible. So you look at the decision you made at the time, and just because you didn't make money on it doesn't make it a mistake, it still could have, based on the data that you had, been the correct play. And then, you know, things happened in the market. There was changes, and it didn't end up making you money. It's super important, if you're in any industry like that, that you're able to separate the results from your decision-making. Like, I don't focus on results anymore. I focus on, did I do everything I said I was going to do to prepare for this tournament? And did I play the absolute best that I can? If I did great, that's success regardless of where I finished. If I didn't, and even if I won the tournament, I'm going to look back at those moments and say, you know what, here are some mistakes I made and here are some areas I can improve on and this is what I'm going to do to improve on it so that I'm better prepared for the next time. There's only value in taking responsibility. This sort of like victim mentality of poor me, woe is me, it's not my fault, just doesn't serve you in your life in any way, shape, or form. All it brings you is pity, and if that's your goal... You know, have a pity party for yourself. Enjoy it, but you're not going to see any results improve.
0: Final thoughts here, because I've already kept you for an hour, and I couldn't be more appreciative of it. I want to ask three questions, and then we'll get you out of here with these. First off, favorite poker movie. And, and along those lines, I guess in part I'm asking, not only did you enjoy it, but you felt like it was representative of what your life experience has been like. I feel like Rounders is the default click play. I really liked Molly's game, Where Are You?,
1: haven't seen Molly's game yet, so it could change. Wow,
0: but, yeah. I'm surprised by that.
1: Yeah, I'm getting around to it. I'll get, I'll get to it. But, <laughs> uh, for me, it was very clearly, and I know that it's the default answer, but Rounders. I mean, when right. Rounders is on, you know, sometimes it's just on in the afternoon, and every time it's on. I mean, I have all the access to watching Rounders whenever I want, but when it's on TV, I just find myself glued to it and watching it. And I know the... The creators of the film, and they're very like you know'm friendly with them, and I just I think it was the best poker movie ever written. Um, obviously, some things I would you know like I would love to see a rounders too, put it to you that way, but uh, it was the closest we've had to a really good poker movie that I think the mainstream also uh, enjoyed as well
0: absolutely I'm, I'm right there with you with that thing and that things on I'm gonna i am going to watch it. I felt like a couple of years ago there were rumblings that there was going to be a rounders, too.
1: There is rumblings, and it's a possibility that there's a script written for it happening in Europe. Obviously, like you know, everything moving over there in terms of poker. Sort of some sort of like story revolving around you know Mike McDermott playing poker in Europe. But uh, I don't know where it's at right now. But
0: a lot of people are hoping Matt Damon would return.
1: Got to. I mean,
0: you can't do it without. Got him. to. Yeah, you can't do it without him, man. It's like uh, yeah. when they switched from uh, Chevy Chase to to Jackie Mason and Caddyshack. It didn't. It didn't really translate to Caddyshack oh. too. Uh, have Mike McD. You got to have Mike McD. Second question: What is the low point for you in poker? Whether it be a hand, a series of weeks, whatever the case might be. Because whatever your low point is, similar to what your high point would be, whatever your low point is, has got to be lower than damn near anybody listening who has played the game because of the stakes you play and the level at which you play. Is there something, is there a moment that stands out?
1: Yeah, part of the way my brain works is I actually do like to train myself to think more often about positive moments rather than negative moments. Because we're naturally inclined, we're wired to remember negative moments a lot more profoundly than positive ones. So they stick out, but um, there is definitely more than a few, but I'll go with one in 2001. There was uh, 11 players left in the World Series of Poker main event, um, and I was chip leader, uh, lost a pot here, and then I played a really big pot with the ultimate winner, Carlos Mortensen, and a German named Henry Nowakowski, who was an amateur player, and made a decision that, you know, what I know now of the game, I wouldn't have made. I had Ace King. He had two sixes. Played this huge pot with him, and you know, flop came Jack Ten, and I didn't catch any Ace King or Queen. Ended up coming eleventh, and that was a really good opportunity back then for me to, you know, win some like the elusive main event of the World Series mm-hmm. of Poker. So um, that was very very hard to take and frustrating because I was just you know twenty three years old at the time, but uh, or 20, 23, 24, something in that neighborhood, but um, but yeah, I mean, other than that, I like I said, I don't spend a lot of time in misery. I spend a lot of time in happiness.
0: Yeah, well, considering what you've got going on, how can how can anybody blame you? So the opposite of the question, of course, is what is the mountaintop? What has been the moment that if you do look at something that, oh, here's my series of positives, this one is the pinnacle?
1: Well, i got to go with 2004. I think in 2004, before that, I was putting in a lot of work in the game, and I was like, you know, I, it really all came together. I won back-to-back WPT events for over a million dollars each. Um, and again that was huge money back then in terms of you know a prize money when you when you buy in for just ten thousand now you buy in for ten thousand a big prize would be three four hundred thousand back then i was winning 1.1 1.8 million and the big one for me was i had a lot riding on the very last event of the year uh, in december of 2004 where uh you know player of the year award was on the line a whole bunch of things and uh, i needed to make the final table the final six to in order to uh to win player of the year so not only did i do that i did so with the biggest chip lead in the history of the world poker Tour and ended up winning one point eight uh, million in that event and just it was just like the crown jewel or just the, the cherry on top to like cap off an amazing year where I was absolutely you know undisputed on top of the poker world, especially when, when it comes to tournaments.
0: You said earlier when we were talking about two thousand and four that it was almost easy why why was that easy?
1: Well, it was much easier because the style and so the the strategy that I developed sort of through trial and error on my own. Um, was far more advanced than what everybody else was using. And it's basically, most of the players today are using a similar version of the small ball approach that I took. And it was really yeah, yeah. simple as, you know, people were not betting, they were not sizing their bets properly. People were just, for example, like, uh, you know, one example I like to use is um, if the flop comes king, seven, deuce, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a 1,000 in the pot, you and you want to bet, and you want to bet as a bluff. If you can bet... A thousand or or like 600 and bluff it. 600 is always better. It's like if you see a car that you want to buy and the sticker price is 10,000, you don't say, Can I give you 12,000? You say, (laughs) Can I give you seven? So I was cutting corners with smaller bet sizing, accomplishing the same thing. So if 6,000 would accomplish the same as 7,000, I would try to go for 5,800 and try to minimize my risk. Essentially, like a, I guess another analogy would be like a boxer. I, Kept both kept my guard up all at all times and threw a lot of jabs. I just constantly jab, jab, jabbed them into submission, and I never allowed them to, you know, punch me back.
0: This sounds that's now we're 14 years removed. It sounds like so obvious. So if there was a thousand in the pot and it's a king seven deuce board, I mean, what what were you betting? I mean, I assume in the four hundred to five hundred range. I mean, were people betting a thousand before?
1: Well, you What's know, it? a lot of players back then would be betting a thousand on those flops, and it's just really, oh my sure. god! Well, they'd bet the pot. A lot of players would bet, you know, three quarters, of, you know, seventy-five percent to one hundred percent of the pot. Today, it's actually gone even lower. Like I actually have developed a strategy I've been working on in the last couple months where I'd be betting a quarter of the pot, so I'd be betting like two fifty there, um, mm-hmm. pretty consistently.
0: So 250 is your bet, size 25% your bet size now, or is this just, Yeah, you know, it they're... is
1: for the most part, but it's actually a different strategy than before. Because before I'd be looking to bet to bluff and win the pot, so I'd probably bet about 600, maybe 575. Now I'm betting smaller for different reasons. I'm trying to, uh, it's very, very complicated, despite what the politicians think, a <laughs> uh, <laughs> way of like sort of create, developing a strategy in a game tree that works with that bet size for all the hands that I could have in that position. I want to put my my opponents in awkward spots. So, uh-huh. for example, if you know I only bet 250, and the flop comes king, seven, deuce, and you have ace, ten, well, what are you going to do? I mean, uh-huh. you know, it's only 250, right?
0: Right, right, so right, right, roll, right,
1: You know, you call, right? But then what? Yeah. Now when it comes yeah. to nine on the turn, now what are you going to do? Yeah, like, yeah. It, I just want to put people in more difficult positions with my bet sizing, because obviously if you have ace, ten, And I would have bet seven hundred. Well, you just fold. But Mm -hmm. for two fifty, what do you do now? You know, maybe you'll try to bluff me. Maybe you'll raise me. So that's the kind of the sort of psychological warfare I want to get into.
0: Yeah, you're sitting there going, "Oh, I'm getting five to one on my my two fifty and it's Ace Ten. Who knows? Maybe my Ace is good. Yeah, you're right. Now, now all of a sudden, now like, oh God, I'll I'll you're stringing them along. That's interesting. Yeah, it's a totally different different spot than where the the game is fourteen years ago.
1: You might fold the Ace Ten, and I just bluff you with Queen Ten.
0: Right, right. Oh, I love it. I absolutely love it. Well, this has been a pleasure. Thank you for so much time, too. My God, I feel like I went uh, way above and beyond what the ask was. So, uh, oh, no worries. I to we, so sure we
1: watched that Golden Knights game. I got it on my TiVo, so it will
0: You've got to get in there. I'd love to see the Blues and the Knights in the playoffs, man, because uh, it, it's not looking real good in St. Louis, but it's certainly looking good. In Las Vegas. Either way, happy for Las Vegas and the success uh, you guys are having out there and continued success in the game of poker. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Daniel.
1: Oh, you're welcome. Pro tip, don't bet on St. Louis making the playoffs this year.
0: (laughs) There it is, Daniel Negrano. Thanks, man. All right, you got it. So there he is, Daniel Negrano with us here on the Tim McKernan Show from the HomeLoanExpert.com studios. Grateful to him for his time. I got to fanboy out. On that, And uh, I I truthfully went into the interview and I had no idea about this new software. Now, some of you who still play on a regular basis, however you may do that, wherever you may do that, uh, might be surprised to hear that. But when I was playing, you had, you know, whether it be like Hold'em Tracker or whatever they were called, uh, you know, you you could monitor how much people were playing certain hands and how to play them. But uh, now this kind of software it makes me think I'd just get eaten alive if I tried to go back and play online, even though it's uh, not exactly ideal to do right now from uh, the U.S., which is unfortunate and really kind of horrifying to hear his opinion that it isn't going to be happening from a nationwide standpoint anytime soon. I mean, uh, as, as I'm doing this uh, podcast, we're coming up on seven years since Black Friday, which means nothing to those of you who don't play poker and it means the world to those of you who were playing online poker and uh it getting shut down on april 15th 2011 i don't know why i truthfully don't know why even social conservatives have said i have no idea why it just can't be regulated taxed and people can go on playing if they want to and if they don't there you go but uh alas we don't have it in the u.s and it is all over much of the rest of the world which for the life of me i don't get. And uh, And it doesn't seem like, based on what Daniel Negrano has to say, it's going to be changing anytime soon from a nationwide standpoint. It probably will have to be state by state. Also really enjoyed the hockey discussion. You hear his passion, uh, not just for the Vegas Golden Knights, but for the game itself. And so enjoyed talking about that with him as well. He's a great Twitter follow. Doesn't hesitate to give his opinion. Real Kid Poker is where you can follow Daniel Legrand, thank you to Ryan Kelly and the com team for their sponsorship of the studios. Thank you to Gateway Buick GMC for their sponsorship of the podcast as well. They are at I-270 and McDonald Boulevard. They are online at GMC.com. Whether you're in the market for a new car, a pre-owned vehicle, or just maintenance, just service, they have 38 service bays to take care of you. They're at GMC.com or... They can be found at I-270 and McDonald Boulevard, that's in Hazelwood, right here in the St. Louis area. So thank you to the Seamaster, John Seymour, for lining that up. Thank you to our videographer, Nick Yale. And thank you to Daniel Granu for joining us here on the Tim McKernan Show. I'm Tim McKernan. Thanks for listening to another edition here on the Inside STL Podcast Network from the HomeLoanExpert.com studios.